Welcome to Running Mead Radio. This is Joanna Barron. Uh, today we are discussing the hotly controversial Bill C-16, which received royal assent and is now law in Canada. It amends the Canada Human Rights Act and the Criminal Code to add gender identity and gender expression to the list of prohibited grounds of discrimination. Of course, we already discussed Bill C-16 with Professor Jordan Peterson earlier in the podcast, um, and I recommend going back and listening to that conversation if you're so inclined. And today we're discussing it in the wake of a Senate hearing and, of course, the, the bill becoming law with Professor Bruce Party of Queen's University Faculty of Law and Asher Honigman, a litigator in Toronto and founder of Advocates for the Rule of Law. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm here in Toronto with Asher Honigman um, and his former professor, Bruce Hardy of Queen's Faculty of Law. Both are longtime friends of Runnymede. Asher also runs a think tank called Ash, uh, Advocates for the Rule of Law. Um, and Professor Party uh, participated in the Senate's Constitutional Legal Affairs Committee on Bill 16, which, yes, as of is it last week, is now law. Thursday, yes. As of Thursday. Well, the Senate passed it on Thursday. Yeah. So. Can you talk about the circumstances that led up to you actually testifying on Bill C-16 and just talk about what the experience was like and how you came to form your views on it? Just everything about that. Well, my role in it probably partially came out of the debate that uh, Peterson and I did. And as you know, because you are the head of the Running Meat Society, but I was and asked. I hope everybody watches that on YouTube. By the way, it's outstanding, especially Professor Parties. Well, <laughs> as you know, I was asked to debate Jordan, um, primarily because the people on the Queen's faculty who had expressed disagreement with his views uh, declined an invitation to do so themselves, and so they asked me to play devil's advocate uh, and, and so that the debate could, could go on. And, and so I did that and we had a, a, a great debate, I thought. Um, and, and Peterson didn't know that you were playing devil's advocate. Well, the, the, the room didn't, but Peterson did. Okay. When he came into the room and sat down next to me, yeah. uh, I had a quiet conversation with him before we started. So okay. he knew, but the rest of the room did not, except for yourself and right. a select of the few people. And you uh, played the part well, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I was watching was, and I said, what, what is happening here? <laughs> well, I, I'm guessing that... <laughs> it was very convincing. It was convincing. It was so Definitely. convincing that actually Asher and I are going to talk about some of the parts that we remain convinced by. Your sort of duplicitous devil's advocate's arguments, which have just lodged in my consciousness some, somewhere. Yes. Oh dear, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I, maybe I can try and persuade you the other way uh, on this occasion, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so the so the Senate's Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee was holding hearings into Bill C-16, and uh, the conservative critic of the bill was Senator Donald Platt, and he had uh, approached uh, Jordan to be a witness, and uh, they were casting around for other witnesses who shared a perspective on the bill, and Jordan suggested suggested my name and they contacted me and we talked about it and I, we decided it was a good idea. So that's how I ended up at the committee. Um, the experience at the committee was a very interesting one. My, the, the, the impression that sticks with me the most is that the 
senators who were in favor of the bill, both liberals and independents, um, from my perspective, we're talking out both sides of their mouths. So it went like this. On the first side was the denial that Bill 616 would have the effect of forcing anyone to use pronouns or speech of any kind. In other words, as far as they were concerned, it did not affect speech. And then they would also say that, oh, well, if it does affect speech, that's perfectly fine because the speech that it requires is reasonable. And it was clear that they would not uh, choose which of those two things they actually meant. They meant both at the same time, even though the two things are actually not consistent with each other. Yeah, if you refuse to use the pronouns, you're acting in a discriminatory manner, but anyways, it doesn't actually require you to use the pronouns. But you would be so beyond the pale if you refuse to use the pronouns that we're not even going to go there. That's correct. Kind of. That's yeah. right. So they wanted to leave it open that, you know, maybe it would affect speech, I think, but they didn't want to defeat the bill on the basis that it would affect speech. They just wanted to pass it the way it was and, and wanted to, to, to protect it against any criticism that would uh, threaten that result, um, which I thought was incoherent, but that doesn't matter in the Senate, apparently. Yeah, so, but th so this pronouns thing really was highlighted because of Peterson's jacuzzi um, back in September where he brought up the problem of, of uh, gender-neutral pronouns. If you read the actual federal legislation, you would not come to the conclusion that this was really up for grabs. It talks about adding grounds for genocide, for hate crime, and also just general discrimination. So how do you get to this, uh, caught this outcome that you and Peterson have both spoken about, particularly Jordan Peterson, that by refusing to use Zs or Zim, you could go to jail. I, I, I still find that very hyperbolic. So can you, if, if you ascribe to that view, can you walk me through that? Yes, the, it is true that neither Bill C-16 nor the Ontario Human Rights Code nor any of the other provincial codes that have similar terms in them, and that is most of them now, none of them refer to speech. So it is an interpretation, uh, but it is an interpretation given by the Ontario Human Rights Commission. And the Ontario Human Rights Commission, along with the Canadian Human Rights Commissions and, and the other provincial commissions, they are the bodies that have the primary role of interpreting the statutes and writing guidelines about what it means. That's a role given in the statute. And um, as administrative lawyers will know, if the commission writes a guideline and if the tribunal gets a case and interprets the statute consistently with the guideline, if you try to review the decision in a court, you're going to get nowhere because the, the, the test is reasonableness. Well, except that depends if you bring up charter issues, which freedom of speech obviously would be, then that becomes uh, a correctness standard, does it not? That is true, except that that's what your case would have to be based upon. In other words, if, I unless you can show a charter violation, then you're dead in the water, essentially. Um, so the criteria would be either this is a violation of the freedom of speech um, provision in the charter, or it's basically insulated from review. Yeah, I, uh, I would concede that point, but I'm not sure 
based upon the jurisprudence that we have that you're guaranteed to find a court who will find that this is a violation of, of that charter guarantee. Hey, I, I think what Bruce put his finger on, though, is very true in that there's nothing in the legislation itself, and, and this might be the disconnect between a lot of, uh, we'll say, well-intended people on both sides of the aisle. You know, I was speaking to a friend of mine who supports the legislation, and what he was saying to me is, don't worry about speech because I would never interpret it uh, to infringe on, on speech in any way. And I think what Bruce has said is correct in that the, the tribunal has gone that way and there's every indication just in general with the Human Rights Tribunal jurisprudence that they want to adopt a very broad reading of all these terms. And so I think if it was clear in the legislation that it wasn't going to offend speech, then I think a lot of people who have a problem with the bill wouldn't necessarily have a problem with it. Bruce still might at that point. Well, let me just read the words of the Ontario Human Rights Commission on the equivalent provision in the human in, in the Ontario Code. Right. Okay. okay, and to be clear, this yes. is uh, interpretive, it's sort of advisory. The, what the Ontario Human Rights Commission says is not law per se. It is not law, well... And even the tribunals aren't bound to follow their that's recommendations. That's correct, but it is the closest thing to an authoritative interpretation you're going to find, because they are the ones, if anybody has the authority to interpret what it means, it's them. So I take your point, it is not like a statute, but it's as close as you're going to get in the administrative workings of the bodies that have been created to administer this, this statute. So it says this, refusing to refer to a trans person by their chosen name and a personal pronoun that matches their gender identity or purposely misgendering will likely be discrimination when it takes place in a social area covered by the code, including employment, housing, and services like education. That is what the Human Rights Commission thinks that it means. So the response to anyone who says, oh, this is ridiculous, it's not going to really mean that you have to use a particular pronoun, well, that's a perfectly valid opinion, but it's not the opinion of the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Okay, so next question. So what? And you made this point as devil's advocate in the Peterson debate at Queen's. So what? If I decide that I want to be referred to by a male pronoun, who are you to push back on me? Who are you to add to, as you say, pushing back is some form of saying, let me see your junk or something like that, which you were obviously being very tongue in cheek in saying. But if, if that's my chosen way of sort of expressing my gender identity, why should you intrude? Well, this is the question. So let's just try and take that apart for a minute. The word that you finished your question with was intrude. And I think if it, was, if it was a question of intrusion, then the situation would be entirely different. Trans people, like everybody else, are entitled to the same rights of non-interference as everybody else. So this whole debate is not about, in any respect, the right of trans people to present themselves to the world as they see fit without, without uh, fearing you know, physical violence, retribution, or anything of that nature. That is a form of formal equality, where we all have the same legal rights and we're entitled to the same protections as everybody else. This is not a question of intrusion. This is a question of compulsion going the other way. So it's all very well to say 
that anyone has the right to present themselves to the world as they wish. It is not the same thing at all to say that the world is obligated to validate that presentation or, okay, or to approve of the identity that you're trying to promote. Let, let's right. let go of intrude and say a yeah. seed. So here, here's, here's an, uh, an analogous example. So if I'm on the, on the TTC, if I'm on the subway um, and I'm sitting in a seat and an elderly or handicapped person comes, I would be a jerk to not get up and offer my seat to them. Yes. Similarly, some people might say I would be a jerk to not refer to somebody by the gender pronoun of their choosing. Mm -hmm. It's disrespectful and it very much rankles against the liberal individualist humanist paradigm of our time. Mm -hmm. So how do you justify saying, uh, you know, kicking up a fuss when one legislation is asking you to do just that? Right. So uh, here we have to distinguish between uh, being a jerk and being required not to be a jerk. Mm -hmm. and And... You know, it might well be that if somebody comes to you and says, look, I would like to be called this. You know, if you're a reasonable person, you might decide that, okay, let's, let's do it that way. And I, I certainly would not object to that. Maybe I would do it myself. But what I, what I will not do is allow or, 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 or agree with my government saying to me, you know what, this is something that you're going to have to do. And if you don't speak the words that you're asked to speak, then you are now in violation of the law and we will, we will come after you with you know, the monopolistic force, force of the state. That, that is not okay. Mm -hmm. Because now you're putting words in the mouths of people. And you know, our freedom of speech um, jurisprudence deals with, uh, largely deals with restrictions. There are lots of restrictions on speech on the books. Uh, defamation, uh, hate speech, negligence law in some cases, um, those are exceptions to the free speech ideal. This is a qualitatively different idea, which is that you must take on the words that you are requested to utter. And although it might not seem like a big deal in terms of your interactions on the bus, it is a huge deal in terms of the way our law is supposed to work. Suddenly you have the state mandating the content of private conversations. And even if it seems minor in the scheme of things, it is not. It is a, is a major step towards uh, state control of communication. Asher, you want to jump in? Well, I would disagree with Bruce to the extent that I think this is a, a qualitative jump. I mean, you can take the position and I know, Bruce, you probably would take this position that any kind of coercion in this kind of area in terms of controlling what people do and think so long as they're not infringing the rights of others, you could argue that's philosophically illegitimate. We already have uh, you know, both a provincial and a federal human rights code, and they already contain a slew of restrictions. I, I would, in fact, I think the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal was already interpreting uh, sexuality I think, or, or sexual orientation, which was already in the code, already to uh, encompass uh, gender and gender expression. So it's almost like we're, we're just formalizing what's already there. They're already, um, tribunals have already said you can't discriminate based on, 
you know, race, ethnicity, gender, sex. And by the way, I, I think most people would agree that if, if you start, if there were uh, a woman, let's say, or who appeared very masculine or a man who appeared very feminine, and his employer uh, was saying to this man, you know, calling him uh, uh, miss or something like that, almost to mock him. I mean, that's, that's his chosen speech. But I think any tribunal, I think most people would agree that they can compel that employer to say, no, you can't call him miss. That is degrading to do that. You're, 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 you're feminizing him. You're trying to make him feel less of a man or, or, or the other way around if it were, were a woman. And we're going to coerce you, citizen, and we're going to say that you cannot uh, say that speech. So I, I think what this is, is it's more and you of would, a, you would agree with that, right? It is yeah, degrading I would, I would say that is completely degrading, and I would support that law. And, and so my reason for my problems with, um, I wouldn't say just C-16, but, but these bills in general, is less philosophical and more practical. Because I think philosophically, as a society, we've already accepted that the state is going to sort of go there, as it were, and that there are certain things that, that is okay for the state to do. So just in this way, if, if someone had had uh, you know, gender reassignment surgery and the employer was refusing to acknowledge that and was saying in front of other employees, no, you're not a woman, you're a man, because I knew you when you were a guy, and I'm not going to call you miss, so how do you like that? I think most, most people would say that's a form of harassment, and I don't know what you're grounded on, but just intuitively it strikes you as unfair uh, employment practices that seem like harassment. I think the problem here, and I've dealt with human rights tribunals in my practice, is that the process can be the penalty. And when, when you start getting into things like, you know, je and jure, and, and terms that most people have never even heard of, you could have a well-intentioned person who's not harassing, who, who just uh, says, you know what, I can't remember that many terms, or I thought, it, I thought it was one and it's another. And you then have to drag that person before a human rights tribunal, and they have to pay for their own counsel. The applicant uh, has their lawyer paid for. They have to essentially go before the state and justify themselves when they may have had no ill intent. There may have been no harassment, in other words. So that's my problem with this bill, that it gets sort of beyond what the tribunal is supposed to be doing, which is stopping jerks, essentially. And you can have someone who's not being a jerk. You could have someone who's, who is trying to be reasonable, who just isn't accommodating enough. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a fair point of view, but uh, I think it loses sight of the role that freedom of speech is supposed to have. When we get into the area of saying it's okay for the state to come in if it's for the purpose of making sure that people are not jerks, I mean, that loses sight of the proposition that freedom of speech is there for the purpose of allowing people to be offensive. I mean, the purpose of free speech Well, is, perhaps is not in Canada. I mean, it's not an unlimited right in Canada. No, no, it, in it's US, certainly not unlimited. But, but, here, but hold on, let's, let's just test this proposition, though. If, if speech is limited to those things that do not offend, and if we accept the proposition that that's the role, proper role of the state in this area, then what have you got left? You now have given the state the green light to, to, to regulate what people find to be offensive. And the, the, all you need to do to find something offensive is to find somebody who disagrees with it. I disagree because we're not talking about a hate speech provision of a code. And if that were the case, that would really be problematic because, you know, uh, I, I can't remember what the, what the bill, it was Section 13 of the Human Rights Act in, 
in Canada, which was repealed. Ontario has never, as far as I know, has never had those hate, hate speech provisions like some of the other provinces like Saskatchewan have or that Quebec was getting. But if that were the case, then that would really just be about free, free speech. But we're talking about employment relationships. Mm -hmm. We're talking about uh, you know, professor-student relationships. And, you know, getting back to what Joanna said at the beginning, that you said some very convincing things. The most convincing thing that you said, which was a way better argument, by the way, than I've, I've heard coming from the left. Though I, I hope people on the left watched, watched the, that, that talk. They could get some talking points from it. But the, the best thing you said was that um, if I'm, you know, purposely misgendering someone, how is that not just a procedural fairness issue? How can that student feel like they're getting a fair shake from me? And so that's the difference. We're not talking about society in general. We're talking about relationships that people enter into voluntarily and that there are rules governing those specific relationships that can implicate speech. And the same way that, um, you know, th that we were saying that an employer shouldn't be allowed to just harass their employee on racial or ethnic issues, which goes to speech, you know, we don't say, oh my God, the, the world's falling apart because, because you know, my, my employer can't call me, you know, a, a slur. You know, we're not saying that. Well, right, but so let, let's go back and talk about that, um, that argument. But, but let's just acknowledge something first. If, uh, part and parcel of this whole proposition is the following idea, that if you refer to someone who looks to you like a male, and you use the word he, that that can amount to harassment. Well, if that person says, oh, I don't want you to use the word he, I want you to use the word she or z or Yes, it and, or, and this is what I was saying, that the right. problem is really about, about people acting in good faith who could be caught by this law, and then at the end, maybe they'll even be acquitted by the tribunal, but they'll be out thousands or right. tens of thousands in legal fees, or the tribunal will, you'll get someone who decides we're going to make an example yeah. of this person. But to the, me, that's the problem. But the, but, the, but the point I'm making is that you, you are allowing some people to step in and say to others, look, in your experience, I look like a hemp, but I am going to make you change and embrace the idea that I'm not a hemp, and I'm going to make you refer to me in some other way that in an earlier era would have been perfectly normal and perfectly okay and we're going to change now the social climate and you've you basically have given the green light to legislating attitude we're not talking about harassment in the way that you're talking about i'm not talking about a situation where someone goes out of their way to make fun of somebody or to make their lives miserable we're talking about the, 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 the English language and how it works, and you're suggesting that it's okay for the state to come in and say, well, you know what, it doesn't matter what they look like. If they want to be referred to as something, then they have that right to, and if you don't obey them, that will be now discrimination and harassment. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a remarkable proposition. I'm, I'm not making that point. The point I'm making is simply that I mean, you said it's a qualitative difference. I'm saying it, it definitely doesn't have to be a qualitative difference. I, I see it more as a quantitative difference. The problems I see with the law are about people getting caught, caught up in it. I don't think we're really saying that different things. Um, I, I do think at the end of the day, if someone comes up to you and says, you know, or a student, and says, you know, I know I look like a him, I'd like you to refer to me as 
her or she if you're referring to me in the third person. I think you would do it, by the way, because I think you're a nice guy. Well, I certainly would. <laughs> I, I, I think I would have done it before. I'm not so sure what's going to happen now because the, you know, the fastest way to get me not to do something is to put it in law and say that I have to do it. Because you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a form of, of pushing back on what you see as a, a, an overreaching state. But let's go back to the argument that you referred to. Um, in the debate, I drew an analogy between using non-gendered pronouns and a professor referring to a particular student in a derogatory way day after day after day. I think the words that I used were, uh, so I suggested that this, 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 this professor, if he referred to a particular student every day as you slimy weasel, right. then the student would have an administrative complaint. And the basis of the complaint was, well, my legitimate expectation is to be treated with an even hand by the professor, to be assessed more or less blindly uh, in a way that's, that um, without, without the professor having established a bias against me. And that language respects the existence of a bias. And I think that's fair enough. But it's different with respect to these pronouns. In order for it to be the same, you would have to read something significant into the choice of the pronoun. So the reason that the words, you slimy weasel, are problematic is that they show a derogatory opinion exactly. about the, from the professor towards the student. But if you choose between the pronouns he or she, I mean, that shouldn't make a difference. It doesn't matter whether or not the student is a he or a she in terms of what mark that they get. Well, except it's all, it's all context, I think. Uh, this is what I'm saying. So yeah. and this is my problem with the law that it, you cannot expect a professor or an employer to keep track of all these things. And, and if someone looks a certain way, it is reasonable for anyone to, to assign them the pronoun that they've always assigned people who look that way. Mm -hmm. But having said that, there, there are going to be exceptions. First of all, if you know someone, you know, for example, used to be uh, a man and now they're a woman, and you intentionally keep referring to them as he, even though they don't look like a he anymore, uh, I think that, you know, you're not saying you slimy weasel, but you're saying something to that person that you know they'll interpret it as you slimy well, weasel. Well, just a minute, though, because there are lots of situations in which people have titles that they prefer. Um, people have brought up the Ms. example in this context on several well, yeah, occasions. Yeah, I was going to say, if I can interject, I, yeah. I think what we're sort of circling around is this sort of organic evolutionary function of language. And have you guys either uh, ever had somebody in your life or social circles who has gender transitioned? So I had one. So a friend of mine from law school um, was a woman and um, transitioned to be a, being a man. But during the transitory period, uh, they, and you'll, you'll see this is already awkward for me, requested that they be referred to as either their initials or they or it. And it was really hard for, for the law school community because it, frankly, it felt sort of rude to refer to this former young woman as an it or a they. It just, it was extremely awkward for everybody. Um, but we did it as best we could, and we did it in good faith. And so I think with the Ms. example, it wasn't sort of legislated. If it sort of it was offered and it was it was taken up because it's very useful. It's useful that you know nobody should know that I'm an unmarried woman because it's none of their business, and it's not Ms. or Mrs. Um, and it, it's useful in a, in varying contexts. So similarly, we don't know yet about these gender neutral pronouns, which are really 
what Peterson is concerned about. He's not as concerned about referring to a former man in the female pronoun or vice versa. He finds the gender neutral, you know, in, in I, non-binary. Because we don't yeah. know yet if they right. track onto human experience. Right, and I agree with him. And, 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 and language will evolve, and it may evolve this way, and if yeah. it does, that's great. But this legislation is sort of setting the car. And we're, the we're still, we're sti exactly, and we're, but we're still talking about two different things. And the two different things are civility on the one hand and law on the other. And this is not a, this is not a conversation about civility. This is a conversation about what it's okay for the state to require you to do. I mean, one of the examples I used in the Senate was this. I said, look, if the statute said, you shall use the words, please and thank you. I mean, those are not unreasonable things to say in polite conversation. But that statute is tyrannical. Not because the language is unreasonable, but because suddenly the state yes. has, has walked in and said, here are the words that come out of your mouth, and if they don't, the police will come to your door. No, fair enough. We go on, uh, if we go to Joanna's example, though, of Miss and Ms., in the context of an employment relationship, again, we're talking about a narrow relationship, and, and maybe even in that context, please and thank you would still be too much, but in that context, um, if you have a male employer referring to his female employee as Miss, 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 and let's say she even corrects him and says, you know, that's Sir, Mr. QC, 75-year-old uh, lawyer, that's a bit antiquated, and, uh, I, you know, maybe in your day that was okay, but I'd like you to call me Ms. and the employer persists in calling her Miss. any lawyer will tell you that is a discrimination complaint right there. That's compelled speech. We have it already. Mm. That's why I'm saying this is a quantitative difference. We have, as a society, we have already said. But, but it wouldn't be the compelled speech. It would be the refusal to, to sort of accommodate her request. It well, would be more contextual. Well, what is the difference? It's saying he calls me Miss. I want to be called Ms. No, because the implication is that he's, he's, he's willfully disrespecting her. Right. And that comes back to my basic point. My problem with this law is that how can you tell that someone, that, that you've got so many new words at play that how can you say someone's acting in bad faith? Well, let's go back, though, to your miss and your ms. I mean, is it your opinion that if, in fact, the, the code plays out that way at the tribunal, that that's okay? My, my position is that that, that uh, fight has been fought and won a long time ago that that would amount to discrimination. And I think in some ways that's a good thing. I mean, we have to be careful. We don't want to, you know, you don't want to punish every single sort of uh, older person who is used to using a word and then gets faulted for not using that and word anymore. But if someone is deliberately using that word to sort of belittle someone. And do you think it makes a difference that that word, that the, the two words that they're choosing between in that situation are two words that you do find in the, in the dictionary? Whereas the words we're talking about in the C-16 situation are not in there. Well, but then by that argument, you could say that, you know, in 10, 15 years when they almost certainly will be in the dictionary, then, I mean, that argument would become a moot point at that. Well, it's possible. It's possible if, if the language evolves so that it becomes common practice to, to refer to somebody by a word that at the moment does not really exists, then we can have this conversation again. But I do think it's, it's it, if things 
um, are as you suggest, and they may well be in terms of employment relationships and Miss and Ms. I do think there is still a significant difference between that situation and the one we're talking about here. Here you have legislation that purports to, to dictate the evolution of language. And you are being required to put words in your use of language that, that, that well, that's I, so far but don't I think exist. we should be careful. It's yes. not the legislation that purports to do that. And, and I think your, your first point was very well taken. But let's remember, it's not the legislation. It's the way in which I think people are reasonably fearing that that legislation will be interpreted. Yes. Um, it doesn't have to be interpreted that way. And even if it were interpreted that way, it could be read down subsequently by a court. Um, well, let's, let's talk about the amendment that didn't happen. Yes, yeah, so I was going to ask yes. about that. So Senator Don Flett proposed an amendment. Yes, yes. And what, 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 was, what was the proposed amendment? Okay, the pro uh, I will read you the proposed amendment. It's very simple, and it... It would uh, have dealt it, with a it, lot it, of it did not. It would have dealt with a, a lot of it, and it would not have changed the substance of the rest of the act in any way. Uh, the wording of the amendment went like this. For greater certainty, nothing in this act requires the use of a particular word or expression that corresponds to the gender identity or expression of any person. That was it. It leaves the rest of it alone. And when, Elegant, succinct. <laughs> when, when, the, when the justice minister testified in front of the Senate committee, she said that it was not the intent of the statute to affect speech, to require anybody to use any particular pronoun. The supporters of the bill in the Senate, as I said at the beginning, suggested the same thing. And yet when this amendment was presented to the Justice Minister and presented to the Senate, the Justice Minister turned it down flat, would hear nothing of it, and in the Senate, the liberal and most of the independent senators voted down. So, I mean, that's not consistent. This, this was an easy way to make it clear that that was not what the statute was supposed and to do. And did you get any sense of their reasons for it, or the, did they articulate them? Well, you'll have to ask them, because, yeah. because as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the whole conversation that you received from them was hypocritical. On the one hand, they denied it was the case, and on the other hand, here was an easy way so to make sure... So you're talking out of both sides of the mouth. Both sides of the mouth. Look, it's, you can't have it both ways. Either you mean for this to affect pronouns or not. If you don't, then say so. If you do, then admit to it. I mean, you, they won't, you know, right now we're in this limbo. I mean, it's quite true that if something changes, the words are not in the statute to require speech. So if the commissions decide to change their interpretation of it or the tribunals don't follow along, then who knows? But at the moment, the message is pretty clear that that's the way the commissions will be proceeding. Okay, so question. Would you have supported the passage of Bill C-16 with the proposed amendment? Uh, I think given the, given the tussle over the bill, I might have decided that that was a compromise worth taking. And of course, I didn't have a vote on it. Um, I'm not a great fan of human rights codes to begin with. I'm not a great fan of the role that commissions play and tribunals play. I don't like the way the administrative law regime 
works with respect to those bodies and others. So it's not ideal, no. Um, and so in your National Post column on this, which we'll link to, you talk about this vision of positive versus negative human rights. So just to wrap up, can you talk about that for a few minutes? Yes, sure. The basic distinction is negative rights are rights that essentially allow you to be free from interference from the state. You know, freedom of speech, uh, the right to be free from arbitrary detention, um, uh, the right to be free from um, uh, unreasonable search and seizure, and, and so on. There are also negative rights scattered throughout the common law that apply between people, uh, um, property rights and so on, but the, the focus here is on the rights as between you and the state. A positive right is essentially an entitlement. It entitles you to receive something, it entitles you to be, um, to be uh, dealt with in a certain way, it entitles you to demand certain behavior from other people, uh, it, it entitles positive things from you. And uh, positive human rights are, are sometimes referred to as sort of second generation human rights. Um, the, 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 the difference is important because the state's capacity to satisfy negative rights is unlimited because all they require is that people be left alone. They can do that forever. When you have positive rights, the entitlements require things from other people, whether they're concrete benefits like housing or welfare, those require taxes from other people. And in this kind of a case, if you require certain behavior from other people, that requires other people to behave in certain ways and interferes with their own liberties. So as I referred to in the column, this second generation of human rights is really a zero-sum game. The, the negative rights are not zero-sum. You can, you can establish negative rights against the state until the cows come home. It does not affect anybody else's rights. But as soon as you're into the area of positive rights, giving those positive rights to some people necessarily takes rights away from other people. So maybe the Bill C C-16 affair is a bit of a canary in the coal mine, i.e. a sign of things to come in the growing clamoring for increasingly elaborate positive rights and positive obligations of private individuals in order to satisfy human rights standards? No, no doubt, no yeah. doubt, yes. I mean, the, the, the contest between uh, uh, positive and negative rights, uh, although it hasn't, I mean, the right, the, the right to positive, well, let me see now. In the, in the Constitution, whether or not the Constitution uh, includes positive rights is a question yet to be answered definitively. Uh, but it is certainly... Well, we know it includes certain positive rights. Okay, well, but yes. Language but rights. Language rights, a right to vote. Uh, you, can, you can find certain positive rights But I rights think what, there, what you mean is the interpretation of classically negative Classically rights. negative rights. Uh, sort of a, a, you know, do those, what were classically negative rights include a list of sort of economic and social positive rights? Do they, do they include things like a right to housing? A right to uh, a constitutional right to health care, um, a right to welfare payment, a right to a reasonable income. All of those things are are positive rights that certain um, from certain academic quarters uh, have been argued to, to to be rights that we should find in our constitution. And whether they will be is a question that remains to be answered. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Asher oh, and Bruce. It was my Thank pleasure. You. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Asher and Bruce. Um, just a reminder to follow us on Twitter, Twitter slash Running Need SOC. And also, if you would like to support the Running Need Society in this podcast more tangibly, um, please visit runningneedsociety.ca forward slash donate, where you can make a donation through PayPal or support us through our Amazon affiliate link. Essentially, just do your Amazon shopping exactly as you normally would, and a very small portion of the proceeds will go to the Running Need Society. Thanks again.